Well, let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 3. You know, one of my favorite all-time quotes is from Martin Luther. He says, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. I love the way that describes the way this word works. This word isn't just something we read as a book of history. No, this book is alive. Through the gift of the Holy Spirit, this book is alive. It speaks to us. It has hands. It lays hold of us. It has feet. It runs after us. It's why John Calvin said, We owe to Scripture the same reverence that we owe to God. You know, the most holy moment of a Sunday gathering is when we read the Word of God. Because in that moment, God Himself is addressing us. These are his words. It's like he is here in the flesh and saying, all right, listen up. These are his words to us. And today we're going to look together at Colossians 3, verses 20 and 21, just two more verses. You're making notes, I've called this message Christ's Supremacy in Family. And if you're a child, you'll see that you're You are addressed very clearly in verse 20. And you may be thinking, oh, I'm not a child. I'm a teenager and a youth. Okay, that's the same thing. In the Bible, they call you all children. If you are under the protection and provision of your parents, you are a child. And then parents. And so if you are one of those two categories, I want to encourage you in particular to pay careful attention to God's word. And if you're outside of those two categories, I want to encourage you to pay careful attention as well because God is addressing us this morning. Every one of us in the room. This is what he says, verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Let's pray. Lord, as we've sang about this morning, you are a wonderful father to us. To be on the receiving end of your love is to be amazed. That you would know our names and you would know our frames and you'd be bothered about us. Lord, I thank you for your ongoing mercy and grace and love and affection that you lavish upon us again and again and again. You are so good to us. And so, Lord, now as we sit under your word, would you do what you do best? Would you speak to our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, to be a Christian is a truly amazing thing, isn't it? I mean, just to pause there and to think about what it means to be a Christian, I think should leave us always amazed. Colossians 3 verse 12 tells us that we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. My friends, that's our identity in Christ, and that's an astounding reality. Before the foundation of the earth, you were chosen. Before any of this even existed, before rain ever fell from the sky because there was no sky, God chose you. He had your name and your frame on his heart and chose you for salvation under Christ. The right time then, when all of creation was made, he sent his son on the greatest rescue mission ever told. 
And through his life and death and resurrection and your faith in it, he declared you to be holy. Isn't that amazing? You are completely and utterly forgiven of your sin. Past, present, and future. It is removed as far as the east is from the west. He justified you through the cross. It is just as if you have not sinned. It's like he wrapped you in his holiness and his majesty. He declared you to be righteous. He didn't then just leave you afar saying, hey, listen, I've, I've you know, cleaned you up a bit and thanks for coming. Off you go. No, he said, listen, I want you now to be seated at my table. You're a son and daughter of mine. So once my enemies, but not anymore, take a seat at my table where I can care for you and watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. He assures us that heaven is our home. And as a deposit guaranteeing that heaven will be our home, he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. A deposit guaranteeing all the way until the end when we finally see his face. What a staggering reality. And he did it all through the sacrificial death of his son, which is why we know for absolute surety you are loved. Just to pause and think about what it means to be a Christian is astounding. God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And it's when you pause and think about that reality of who we are before the Lord and who he really is that Colossians chapter 3 and 4 begin to take on a whole new aura and meaning. Because these chapters that are so heavily defined by instruction, listen, they are not the abstract instruction of a distant and far off king. No, they are the gracious instruction of a kind and loving father. One who sits us down and says, hey, listen up. I know you. I know your names. I know your frames. I was there when you were born. In fact, I was there when all things were born. I was the one who made you and designed you to function in certain ways. And said, listen, take a seat this morning. As my chosen ones, holy and beloved, I want to talk to you to tell you a few things. That really changes the whole tone of what we're reading, don't you think? And what we have here then in these two verses is a picture of what it looks like to have Jesus as supreme in our families. What does it really look like to have Jesus who is first in our hearts as we give our lives to him as Lord and Savior? What does it look like to have him as first in our families? And so if you're a child or a teen or a youth or a parent, these verses have particular relevance to you. It's talking about the biological family unit. And yet if you are outside of those categories, these verses have profound importance for you as well because they are all addressed to the church family. It's not like Paul says, hey, listen, if you're not a child, if you're not a dad, thanks for coming, Just you can pipe out the room for a minute. I've just got a few things to share. They're always addressed to the family unit, understanding we're all involved here. We're all needed here. We're all part of the picture here. So I have two points this morning. Number one, God's instruction for children. And then number two, God's instruction to parents. And both points are designed to unpack what it really looks like to have Jesus as supreme in our families. So number one, God's instruction to children. What does it really look like to have Jesus as supreme in our families for a child? Well, listen up, young people. Verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. 
What it looks like for you to have Jesus as supreme in your life is to obey your parents in everything as is pleasing the Lord. Now, what does it mean then to obey? See, I think so often we think, well, to obey just means somebody tells me what to do and I do as I told and that's what I have to do. It's a little bit more than that. <laughs> to be obedient, to obey, as biblically defined, literally means to hear under. To incline your ear to something. And so in this context, to obey a parent means placing yourself as a child under the parent's words and authority and inclining your ears to listen to them. Why? Well, because this pleases the Lord. I mean, that should be a staggering moment for any child in the room to realize I have the opportunity before God to do something that the maker of heaven and earth says, I love that. That pleases me. That delights me. It's a profound God-given opportunity and it is an opportunity that we partake of when we are obedient to our parents in everything as is pleasing to the Lord. You know, whether we like it or not, we all need counsel and instruction of others, don't we? We all need it. We all need counsel and instruction of other people. And I preface that statement with whether we like it or not, because very often, and particularly when we are younger, I think the answer to that is, well, whether we like it or not. I don't like it. I'm not into it. In fact, counsel instruction of others really isn't my thing. And that was my story, definitely, growing up. You know, counsel and instruction was just not my preference. I was proud. I was 10 going on 80. And I just thought I knew all things. I am the fount of all knowledge. And so I really don't need the counsel and instruction of others in my life. It got me into a lot of trouble in my younger years. And actually it got me into quite a bit of trouble in my early 20s as well, as my childhood seemed to prolong longer than most people. I just didn't think I needed the counsel and instruction of others. For example, I remember when I first bought a house. I was 20 years old. I left university, bought a house because I thought it would be a good thing to do. And I bought my first piece of self-build furniture. It was a wonderful experience. Went to Ikea, bought the first piece of self-built furniture. I mean, I did design technology at A-level, which is like HSC. You think this would be sweet. Studied engineering, no problem. So I unpacked the self-built furniture. I think it was a wardrobe. I got everything out, all the wood out and all the screws and all that. And then I found something at the bottom, an instruction book. thought, oh, that is for weak men. So I put the instruction book out of the way. In fact, I actually put it straight in the bin. I didn't want anything to do with the instruction book because I know things. I know how to do it. And so I built this, I tried to build this piece of self-built furniture. I would definitely was not going to look at the instructions. And it was fine. You know, I built it and I thought, this is sweet. And I got it up and I'm like, this is really good. Until I looked on the floor and there was like bits of wood and like glue and screws. And I'm like, oh my goodness, where's this meant to have gone? I had no idea where it's meant to go. But that kind of summed up my life. Remember the first time I bought a car GPS system? Now we get them on our phones, right? So if you're younger, you're like, I have no clue what he's talking about. Well, back in the day, they were like screens by themselves that you sort of stuck on the front of your car. And it took you about half an hour just to program in where you were going. You're like, I could have been there by now. But I remember putting in, like, I've got to go to a certain place because I got lost, like, all the time. I mean, it was just a common feature of my life. So this GPS system was there to solve this being a reality. Here's the problem. What I discovered is for a GPS system to work, you have to actually listen to what they're saying. And that was the problem. Because in my life, I didn't like listening to people. So even when I first got married, we'd turn this GPS system on, we'd put it in, and she'd be telling you, you know, turn left. 
And I was saying, no, I mean, it's definitely straight ahead. I don't think it's... Turn left. And it's like the woman at the end of the GPS system would be getting irritated with me. Turn left! You know, it's like she sensed that I was not going to turn left. And I never, I didn't turn left. I'm just going. And numerous times, numerous times, we get lost all the time. The GPS system's telling us where to go, but I thought I knew better. That kind of sums up my teens and twenties years. And yet the reality is, however old we are, we all need counsel and instruction of others. And for children, what God does is he says, hey, listen, you're going to need the counsel and instruction of others, so I'm going to give you something primary in your life. And they're called mum, and they're called dad. And you're going to need them. So your parents are called to train you in the way that you should go. That's what it says in Proverbs 22, verse 6. They're to teach you about what is right and wrong. They are to instruct you about what is wise and what is foolish. They are to teach you what is the good path and what is the bad path. And they are to counsel you in what it looks like to honor and please the Lord in all of life. And you need them. And they're a wonderful gift of God to you. John Piper says it this way, somewhat amusingly. He says, in reality, so much of life does not come naturally for human beings. The sucking reflex comes naturally. The falling reflex comes naturally. The iris of the eye closes naturally in bright light. And we don't have to learn to cry when hungry. But that's about it. And those skills will not get us very far in this world. No, they will not. The things that will come naturally to you are profound and delightful. They will not get you very far in your life. And so what God does is he says, listen, you're going to need counsel. You're going to need help. You're going to need people alongside you to instruct you and train you in the way you should go. Let me introduce the greatest gift to you outside of my son. Your mum and dad. They're a gift to you. To help you. To train you. And to teach you by the difference between right and wrong and wise and foolish and what it looks like to honor and please the Lord. And so what does this actually look like for children and youth? When you put it all down and understand that I'm called then to incline my ear to my parents, to sit under them, to learn from them. What does that actually functionally and practically mean? Well, three things. First and foremostly, It means that as kids, we should appropriately look to our parents for primary instruction and counsel. The primary instruction and counsel that comes into your life should come from mom and dad. And listen, I still remember being a youth. I'm not as old as Patrick. I mean, he has got no memory of his childhood, but I still remember every week. I certainly remember being a teenager and... You know, I was one of those teenagers that thought, why would you ever chat to your parents? Because, you know, they were around when, like, Noah was around. I think, like, when dinosaurs were still tracking, my dad was hanging with them. I mean, he just seemed so out of touch. But my friends, they were so with me. We understood each other. We hold each other. We're homies. They are prehistorics. We are homies. And so I thought my friends and my peers, they're really the fount of all knowledge. My parents just don't understand. So I'm not going to talk to my parents about stuff. I'm going to talk to my friends about stuff because they understand, not realizing that actually it was the blind leading the blind throughout my entire childhood, but no clue about that. You know, the primary counsel and instruction that come to our lives should not primarily come from friends or peers or websites or social media. 
Now, the primary instruction and counsel should come from our parents. Why? Because they are the gift of God to us to do that for us. To protect us. To care for us. To train us. To help us. Secondarily, it means that when our parents are asking us about friendships and relationships, about what we're reading, about what we're watching on TV or looking at on the internet, they are in fact actually not violating or intruding on our freedoms. They're actually just doing what God has called them to do. For they're called to protect you and love you and instruct you. And it's so easy as a kid to think, you're violating me. How dare you look at what I've looked at on the computer. This is a, we're so independent now. Whereas actually they're just doing what God has called them to do. To protect you and love you and train you. And if they have no intel, how are they meant to move you forward? So they're not violating you. They're not intruding on your freedoms. They're doing what God has called you to do. Thirdly, it also means to really obey our parents. means to listen well to our parents. To listen well to their instruction and not forsake it. Simply means don't ignore it. You know, how many amongst us remember your first bike? Do you remember your first bicycle? All right, there's a few people. Patrick, you remember? This is good. Good memory banks are good. Long-term memories. The memory banks. I still remember my first bike. Christmas 1979. I know what you're thinking. Is he really that old? I know. I look so young for my age. But Christmas 1979, I was four years old, and I got my first bike. And I was really pumped about it. It arrived there. Santa brought it, apparently. It's a beautiful thing. And it arrived by the tree. And I was really pumped about this. And I still remember it. A bright blue bike with big white tires. It was everything that a four-year-old dreamed of in 1979. And then on the side were these huge training wheels that stuck out. You know, the L-shaped things on the back. And they were just going to help you like ride your bike. And I was so proud of this bike that I was riding it for weeks. Check out my bike. Four years old. Everybody look. I loved this bike. I thought it was amazing. Over the first few months of having this bike, I just wanted to show everybody my bike. And I was so thrilled with these training wheels because they meant I could ride everywhere. I didn't mind my parents around. I could just ride everywhere on this bike. Check me out. Balance is so good. And over time, the training wheels sort of bent a little bit. So you did go a bit from side to side as it wobbled and so on and so forth. But after the first few months, here's what started to happen. Even at four years old in my life, although I started by loving the training wheels, by the end, I started to find them somewhat irritating because I wanted to be free. I wanted to go free. I want to be able to ride wherever I want to as fast as I can. And so I asked my dad, can you take these training wheels off? And he wasn't keen to take the training wheels off for some unknown reason. And so I had to learn how to actually ride my bike without the tra- with, with the training wheels on, but to do it in a different way. And so here's what I, here's what I did. I built a ramp in my garden to start off with and I would cycle as fast as I could up this ramp and then try and come out on an angle to try and snap them off. So I'd go up and boom and it it didn't work. They just bent and so then I'd try and go up against the wall and scrape them off as best I could. I did all I could to get these training wheels off because I just wanted to be free. Here's the challenge I think we all face as kids. I think that can so easily be a picture of how we treat our parents as well. We're grateful for them for a while, and now you're cramping my freedom. I just need to be free. I need to be my own person. You're violating me. 
And so we go from being, we're grateful for these stabilizers that help me grow. We decide at some point in my life, I don't need that anymore. I just want to be free. And yet we fail to realize that we're actually not ready to be free. And your parents aren't actually trying to wreck your life. More often than not, they're actually trying to save your life and help you and train you in the way you need to go. See, Proverbs 10, verse 17 says, Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life. Proverbs 13, 1 says, A wise son hears his father's instruction. My favorite, Proverbs 1, verses 8 to 9. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. It's beautiful. It's written by Solomon to his son. And he's helping him say, son, I love you. I want this to go well for you. And it's inscribed in the Bible so that we can experience that and love on that for the rest of our days. You know, kids, the greatest gift that God has given you outside Jesus Christ is your parent. They're called by God to train you, instruct you, and help you in the way you should go. They're not trying to wreck your life. They're trying to help you save it. And so... What does it look like to have Jesus as supreme in our families? Well, as kids, it looks like obeying your parents in everything as is pleasing to the Lord. Is there a time then for you not to not obey your parents? Because it says they're in everything. It's kind of like pretty encapsulating. Well, yeah, there's a time not to. If they're causing you to sin, if they're abusing you, If they are doing things or calling you to do things that would not be pleasing to the Lord, that is the time to say no and to give us a call and I will help you as best I can. But outside of those rare moments, you are called by God to obey your parents in everything which pleases him. What about parents then? What are you meant to do in response? And that's my second point, God's instruction To parents, what does it look like to have Jesus supreme in our families when it comes to your role as parents? Well, verse 21 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, just to be clear, when Paul says fathers there, he's not just saying just dads. Ladies, do what you want. Don't worry about it. But just dads. No, that's not the point. He's talking there about the headship of a husband. Ultimately, the husband is responsible for his marriage and his home. We live in such a feminist society now that people don't like that. But whether we like it or not, we're actually created by God and accountable to God, and that's the way he's created it to be. God comes back today, and he wants to talk about your family. Guess who's got the microphone in their hands? All the dads. It's the way God has designed it to be. And yet, make no mistake as well, when he's addressing fathers, he's not saying, mums, don't worry about it. He is indeed addressing parents. He's just establishing who's ultimately responsible. But this is an instruction to parents. And so what does it look like to have Jesus as supreme in our families as a parent? Well, it looks like parents not provoking your children lest they become discouraged. See, make no mistake, Paul is very aware of what parents are called by God to do. Parents are called to train their children in the way they should go. Proverbs 22, verse 6. 
That's why Paul himself says that we are to bring our children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. He preaches a whole section on it in Ephesians chapter 6. It is a parent's responsibility before the Lord, as people who themselves are under authority, to bring their children up in the training and instruction of the Lord, to train them in the way they should go for the glory of the Lord. And yet what I find fascinating about this verse here in Colossians 3 verse 21 is Paul's primary concern here is not about the what that we're meant to be training them in. He assumes that. His premise here is not the what, it's how. It's the tone, the manner, the way we're going about training and instructing them in the Lord. And this point could not be more clear. Parents, do not provoke your children. But he's effectively saying, hey, listen, in the way that you train them and teach them and instruct them in the way they should go, parents, do not provoke your children. You know, that word provoke there simply means to exasperate or embitter or to stimulate and move to anger. Quite clearly, there is a way of parenting that can bring about all of those things. And what Paul is saying is, don't do that. Don't provoke your children. Do not exasperate them or embitter them or move them to anger. Why? Well, because lest they become discouraged. Literally disheartened or dispirited or discouraged. I.e., they simply want to give up. They think in their young lives, what's the use? I can never do anything right. All I get in my life is into trouble. What's the point? So they get dispirited and discouraged and disheartened and they just think, you know what, I'm just going to give up. They may look perfect, they may do their thing, but at some point they're gone. Because they were broken long ago as they became discouraged what it really meant to grow up in the Lord. Now make no mistake, parents, Paul is not making a blanket statement here. This is encouraging, because if you are a youth here this morning, I don't want you thinking, bingo. Every time my parents try and discipline me, I just say, I'm very discouraged by what you're saying. I'm very dispirited. I feel embittered. You can't do this. No, there's going to be times when your parents are disciplining you and correcting you that you're going to be really angry and upset, and they're totally doing their jobs. This isn't a blanket statement here of never upset your kids. I think sometimes in culture, particularly in Sydney, you can get the impression that no one wants to upset their kids. Well, that's going to be tricky because sometimes you're going to upset them. If you're actually leading them and disciplining them and training them, they're not going to like it. It says in the Proverbs that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, so that doesn't mean that they're instantly going to go, oh, oh, this is so good to hear. Come, thank you for my discipline. I so appreciate It's never going to happen. But Paul is not making a blanket statement here. What he is doing is saying, listen, in the way you ongoingly train and instruct and care for your children, make sure you do not provoke them. You know, on paper, as I was studying this this week, I got to thinking that in all reality, this does not sound too hard, does it? I mean, what parent amongst us would actually ever want to provoke their kid? How could we ever imagine any parent ever doing anything that would embitter or exasperate or move their child to anger in an ongoing way. None of us would ever do that, right? And yet, in all reality, I think in practice, this instruction is actually quite a lot harder than it looks. 
Because I think actually there are a number of ways we can exasperate our kids and move them to anger completely unwittingly and don't even recognize and see that we're doing it. For example, parental hypocrisy. That'll do it. That'll provoke them to anger. See, this takes place when a parent points their child in the way that they should go and expects them to get there, but doesn't actually practice what they preach themselves. This is a do-as-I-say, not-do-as-I-do style of parenting. And it's tricky. It's the dad, then, who tells his son off for shouting by shouting at them. (laughs) Stop shouting! You are always shouting in my house! Stop it! Hmm. Maybe they learned that somewhere. Maybe they learned it off you. It's the mom who corrects her daughter for being obsessed with her looks and yet blocks up the bathroom every evening as she she attempts to assess her looks and address her looks because she herself is preoccupied with her looks. It's the dad who... Corrects his son for spending too long on their mobile phones. You are always on your mobile phone. Whenever I see you on your mobile phone, just stop it. Just a minute, I've just got to check my mobile phone. And whenever the kid sees you, you've always got this third wheel on the mobile phone. But as soon as you put it down, all you want to do is address them. And why are they always on their mobile phone? Or it's the parent who calls upon their child to say sorry and ask forgiveness from others. When they've sinned against someone, and yet when you sin against someone, maybe even against that kid, the room stays strangely silent. Nothing said. No asking for forgiveness, no moving on. It just moves on. My friends, that is parental hypocrisy, and there are a few things that will bring a child to exasperation more than parental Hypocrisy. It does not work. It cannot be do as I say, not do as I do. They will copy you. And if they're not allowed to copy you, there will be problems. Think about the time in the Bible, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That, he wasn't even a parent, but that is actually great parenting. Become like me. Parental hypocrisy will devastate our children. It will cause provocation in their lives. Likewise, parental inconsistency. That'll do it as well. That also provokes children. Parental inconsistency is such a sure way to provoke our kids to anger. And yet it is so easy to do, I believe, and it is so easy to do, particularly when our kids are young. (laughs) When your kids are young, it is such a challenge and a temptation not to be inconsistent with them. I think parenting young children is... Really, really hard and really complex. I mean, parenting full stop is really hard, okay? Let's just put that out there for all the parents. Let's be clear. It's really tough. I mean, being the lead pastor of Sovereign Grace Church comes with its challenges. Being the director of Emerging Nations for Sovereign Grace Churches comes with its challenges. None of them are as hard as being a dad. Parenting's really hard. It's really difficult. And being consistent, particularly when our kids are young, is, is hard. But if we're not, it causes challenges. And so one day the kids are allowed to stay up late and sleep in your bed. But the next day they're not allowed to stay up late at all. They need to sleep in their own bed, otherwise it's going to cause a problem. But the day after they're out again. 
and then they're not again. One day they get into trouble for something, the next day it's laughed at because it's kind of amusing. But then they get into trouble for it again. If that maintains and happens, and I get it, and I've been there, and it's tiring, and it's difficult, and it's often when we're fatigued that we start to become inconsistent. But if that maintains, either two things will happen. One, they'll either grow up not to respect you because they'll be boundless, or two, they'll be exasperated. Because the goalposts keep moving all the time, and they don't know where the lines are. And it's funny, when a kid goes through that, what actually it usually manifests as is anger. They seem angry, but often they're angry because they don't know where the lines are. They can't articulate that. But that's more than often what's happening in their life. Parental inconsistency will provoke them. I think the biggest challenge, though, is this third one, overbearing fault-finding. And this one's tricky. Because overbearing fault-finding usually begins as a practice with a good, godly, conscientious parent doing actually what God has called them to do. And so it's a parent taking their role seriously, thinking, man, I've got to train you in the way that you should go. I need to do all I can to bring you up in the training and instruction of the Lord. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to be intentional and conscientious with that reality. The challenge comes, though, where that practice somewhere along the way gets somewhat distorted and a pattern then of overbearing fault finally begins to form. And the fruit of that is as that kid grows up through the years, they're not aware of the evidences of grace in their life. They're just aware of all the areas that they're meant to be changing in. And so they can tell you a ton about, I'm doing this wrong, I'm doing this wrong, my parents think I need to grow in this, and I probably do, I suck at everything, and I need to do this. But no awareness of where God may be at work in their life. No awareness of how much you love them and how much you appreciate them and how much you see God at work in their lives and you want to encourage them in this and this and this and this. No, they're not aware of those things. They're just aware of all the ways in which they need to change. You know, in the book Pride and Prejudice, there's a wonderful illustration of this because at one point in the story, Elizabeth's father has discovered in a letter from Mr. Collins that the arrogant and self-righteous Mr. Darcy is interested in Elizabeth and he would like to date her. To start off with, Elizabeth's father isn't, consu- isn't concerned about this because he assumes surely Elizabeth will not like him. But then he discovers in the letter that Elizabeth would appear to be in love with him. Oh no. So he calls a meeting with Elizabeth in a desire to protect her. He looks her in the eyes and says, Elizabeth, Mr. Darcy never looks upon a woman except to see a blemish. That was his concern. If you date this man, all he ever really does is points out areas in which you need to change, blemishes and difficulties and things you don't cut it in. He's never going to talk to you about evidences of grace or encouragement, darling. He's just going to look upon you and see blemishes. You know, I think sometimes as parents, whether we like it or not, and often unwittingly, there is a Mr. Darcy in all our Let me ask you this, from one parent to another, from one friend to another, when you look at your child, what do you see? Think about them individually. What do you see? And maybe more pertinently, if I was to talk to your child, 
and get some time with your child. And if I was to ask them, listen, when you think about your mum and dad, what do you think they see? And what do they make you most aware of? Evidences of grace, how they thank God for you with specifics or areas in which you need to change. Tell me. What do you think they'd tell me? What do you think they would communicate with me? You know, in all honesty, my friends, I'd want you to know I have failed in all three of these things many different times and at different times in my life. I have. I have been an inconsistent parent at times. I have been a hypocritical parent at times. I have been a fault-finding parent at times. I've done all these. And I trust minimally that helps you just know there's somebody else that can relate to you. If I told you all my parenting misadventures, I could write a book on that. Things not to do. And that's why I so thank God for grace. Isn't it good to know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Is it not good to know that God doesn't look down at you and say, you know what? I only really wanted you as part of my family because I thought you'd be like an epic parent. I thought you'd be an amazing parent. And now I've realized you're not so good. I'll leave it. It's okay. No, no. Thank the Lord that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God does not accept you and choose you and love you and sing over you because of your parenting. He accepts you and sings over you and loves over you because of the finished work of Jesus Christ in your place. That's what it means to be chosen and holy and beloved. It's not like chosen, holy and beloved as long as you're a really great parent. No, it's just holy and chosen and beloved, period. I so thank God then for grace that my relationship with him is not dependent on my abilities as a parent. And yet I also so thank God for grace to change. And that's why this is here. This is not some angry father saying, hey, listen, sit down. I've got a few things to share with you. It is a kind and loving father saying, hey, listen, those kids, they're actually my kids that have been entrusted to you for your care and oversight. And so I want to love you and talk to you about how that works. And what this all means. Parents, a couple of questions then that I want to encourage you to talk about. See, there are a few people in your home that will be able to help you really specifically grow and change. And they are your kids. Your kids will be able to help you grow and change. So I'm not saying don't talk to your spouse. I'm not saying don't talk to your friends. Do that. But if your kids are old enough to actually talk, particularly if they're like five, six years old and above, we're good to go. A couple of questions I want to encourage you to ask them. Number one, if you're really honest with me, what's one way I could grow to be a better parent to you? If you were really honest with me, what's one way I could grow to be a better parent to you? You know, that's a question we started asking our kids when they're about five and six years old. And I will warn you, if you've got younger kids, it can be entertaining. Our daughter at the time, Amy, said, oh, ice cream. I would love more ice cream. And you think, okay, we'll run with that. I love ice cream too. Let's have more ice cream. You know, you don't know what you're going to get. But it starts to teach the kids that I'm interested in what you think. And I want your help 
because I want to be a good dad to you. And I'm not assuming I got it all together. So ask them. And what you find is as they get older, their help will become invaluable. There's been numerous times for Emma and I when the kid has said something and you're like, oh, yeah. The phone's one, for example. That would be classic. Hey, kids, what's one way I could be a better dad to you? Well, kind of feel like you're on your phone like a lot. Ooh, am I? I don't think I am. And then as they get older, they're like, sure, I'll show you how to check on your phone about the screen time of how long you've been on each day. And there's no need to do that, kids. I believe you. It's fine. But it's helpful. And if you really want to transition as your kids get older from them to being little kids to being your friend, well, this is what you do. You start befriending them and inviting them into your life because you need them. And then secondarily, the second question I want to encourage you to ask them is if you're really honest with me, what do I make you most aware of? Areas in which you need to change? Or things I thank God for about you? I want to encourage you to take the time with each child to ask that question. And my prayer would be that that very question would lead to a sweet moment in your family where you can take the time to tell them how you feel about them and to articulate very clearly, this is what I so thank God for about you. These are the things I see you growing in and changing in. These are the things where I see Jesus at work in your life. Take the time, even in the next week or so, to take each child through those questions. I really genuinely believe it will serve you well to humble yourself. It's funny, we want our kids to talk to us like that. But that only starts when we train them by talking to them like that. I think one of the sweetest times, because we got taught these questions, they're not from me. I, I, I have no original ideas. I'm at best like a walking quote. So if you studied hard, wider a field, you'd realize, oh, that's where I learned that from. That's where it, Of course I did. I'm not that bright. But there's been sweet moments where as the kids have grown up, we've asked them those questions and we don't ask anything back, but it's the sweetest moment when your kid turns around and goes, Dad, how can I be a better son to you? Where could I grow to be more like Jesus? They're sweet times. That did not, that did not happen day one. <laughs> but it will come. And they're sweet moments. My friends, what does it look like to have Jesus as supreme in our families? Well, for kids, it looks like obeying your parents in everything as is pleasing to the Lord. And for parents, it looks like not provoking your children lest they become discouraged. Brothers and sisters, these words have not come from some abstract God who is distant and far off and untrusted in us. These words right here are from a kind and loving father who knows your name and knows your frame, who knows your kids better than you do. It says, listen, this is how I want you to look after them. So may we hear these words and may we heed these words and may his grace abound to us all. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your wonderful fatherly care for us. You really are a good, good father. And Lord, to know that we are your sons and daughters is a staggering reality. Lord, would we never be unamazed 
by what it is to call you Father. Oh Lord, whether we be a parent or a child or an other in this room today, we are all sons and daughters of you. Would that reality always leave us speechless and amazed and completely humbled? For what a kind, kind Father you are. Lord, thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for caring for us. Thank you through the gift of the Spirit that you are in us. Thank you for being our Father. Amen.